All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Can we talk seven else? Can, can we talk about seven else? might think of hell as a hot place. That's how it's depicted in old-time movies and cartoons. A sweltering abyss full of ghouls thrusting pitchforks and inflicting bloody debauchery upon the recently damned. I'm not a believer in such places, but if I were, I'd be more inclined to go with the Dante's Inferno depiction, where hell is a cold, forgotten place, the darkest point in the universe, furthest from God, where Sinners are trapped on moving beneath the ice, and Satan mindlessly flaps his wings, trying to escape. But then there are devils among us, devils who become immortalized in movies, books, television shows, and podcasts, the types contained within the Dark Topic catalog, the types who raise the bar as to how evil and savage we can be, who inspire future psychopaths to pursue their own dark dreams and satiate their enormous appetites the worst of which, I can almost believe, were sent from an evil place, maybe spawned from a cold corner of the cosmos, a spore that crashed here via asteroid eons ago, eventually morphing into something unfathomable and burping up from the bottom of the ocean to take a hideous form, like an anglerfish, or worse, like an Albert fish. He's approaching again through this retelling, immortalized by those who recall him. His skin appears to be made of ash, but on closer inspection, 
it's Muddy Frost that lends him his infamous grayish hue. Welcome to Dark Topic, I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 16, The Silent Angels of Albert Fish. is a family of fish growing in the District of Columbia. People talk about them fairly often. They're one of those well-connected families. The status passed down rather than earned. The men wear suits. The women nice clothes. They live in a nice house that is haunted by their lineage's history. Everything they own is a little tattered, worn on the edges. The members of the fish family themselves are worn, drawn out. It's no secret in town that every last one of them is touched in the head. They are religious maniacs on the best of days, jabbering nutcases on the worst. Whatever networking they do in town is not enough to keep this family of madmen and women together after the family patriarch, Randall Fish, dies of a heart attack in 1875, clutching his chest and dropping over in front of a train station at the age of 80. Randall is a former riverboat captain, or at least he is until that last big torpedo gets him right in the old steam engine and he leaves behind five surviving family members. There's his wife, Ellen, who is 43 years younger than him, as well as his four children. Every one of his spawn is afflicted by some malady, some crucial piece missing from their brains, allowing the clocks to tick, though they never keep the time. One dies of hydrocephalus, his brain drowned in fluid, swelling his skull to a point where his body fails under the stress. There is a daughter, as well, who suffers from an unnamed mental affliction, and so fades from history. But Randall Fish's most notorious child is a boy named Albert. I want to take you back to that vision of hell, that cold, lonely place out there in the forever dark. A piece of something breaks off, maybe as a result of flapping wings, and shoots through space until it reaches Earth sinks below the surface, and buries itself as close to the core as possible, before finally floating to the surface and crawling onto land. It's a malformed thing, a thing that never has to be born, that by all intents and purposes, by all sane and holy logic, should never have been. On May 19, 1870, Albert Fish, maybe the descendant of such a creature, is born. And five years later, his father dies, leaving the family destitute, his mother desperate. Born into a family of insane people, Fish is just as soon torn from even that to be placed in an orphanage as a matter of necessity. If there are markers on the road to hell, this perhaps is the first in the route of a boy who will one day be known by such monikers as the Brooklyn Vampire, the Moon Maniac, and the Gray Man. To the young fish, raised in a home full of religious maniacs, it isn't hard to imagine he saw the St. John's Orphanage as a sort of church. The building is huge to a five-year-old, and carries that name, after all. St. John, as in St. John the Baptist. The man who washes away sin, 
and casts you in the image of God, the man who welcomes you to your new religion. Fish, already predisposed to mental incongruities, is dropped right into the absolute center of hell. Despite its name and the suggestion inherent of an institution of religious reform, St. John's is a den of absolute depravity. The staff beat the older boys, the older boys beat on fish, and sexual abuse runs rampant. Between the ages of five and nine, Fish is beaten and raped so many times, he begins to like it. Far in the future of this story, and after all is said and done, and the name, Albert Fish, is resting like poison on the lips of every man and woman in America, Fish will say this is where he learned to enjoy sadism. He will tell his one-day counselors that he would sit and watch the other boys being beaten and raped and get an erection. His mother eventually retrieves him after picking up a government job that nets her enough money to take care of her kids again. But the damage is done, and Fish is already showing its effects. He displays a compulsion for coprophagia and urologia, two fancy words that means he likes to eat shit and drink piss. He also brings home his tendencies towards extreme sadism and masochism, making a studded paddle out of wood and nails and a cat of nine tails out of an old belt. He strikes himself and others with these tools in order to gain sexual satisfaction. By the age of 12, Albert is engaged in his first adult relationship, though adult is fairly generous. It's no stretch to say the damage done to him at St. John's had corrupted absolutely his conception of what a healthy relationship entails. He engages in an ongoing homosexual relationship with an adult telegraph boy. He also begins the earliest iterations of what will one day become some of his most notorious habits. He starts frequenting bathhouses to watch younger boys undress and begins to pen obscene letters to women. Every day he picks up the paper and pours over the classifieds, picking out easy victims to send disgusting letters to, most often women looking for boarders and husbands. It should also be noted that during this period, Albert officially changed his name to Albert. He was actually born Hamilton Fish, Albert being his middle name, but came to hate the name Hamilton because of his classmates. They like to call him Ham and Eggs, which is about the most pedestrian nickname of all time, but it got to him all the same. So he changed his name to Albert. Fish moves to New York City at the age of 20, working as a house painter, decorator, and sometimes prostitute. It's not known exactly who the first boy is or when it takes place, but around this time, Fish becomes a prolific child rapist. The transition from victim to abuser comes to him gradually, but it comes all the same. He starts out with simple molestations and peeping, using his job as a painter, both as cover and reconnaissance. He worked all over the city, often taking jobs where he'd be around the poor, his favorite target being minority children with disabilities those least likely to seek out or to gain the kindly bent ear of a police officer when something went wrong. It's not hard to imagine Fish slipping up and down the sides of buildings on a rickety paint-spattered old ladder. He looks in his twenties much like he'll look for the rest of his life. He's slight of build and somewhat frail, with a thin face and facial hair. In his younger years, a heavy old-timey mustache. He goes from this window to that, creeping around like a spider, a shadow against the sun. The kids barely notice while they play in the hallways of dilapidated buildings, 
that they're being watched. Later, there are footsteps on the stairs, slow at first, but picking up speed with every step. The excitement barely concealed. He's a sadist, still, too, and he harms many of the children that fall into his clutches. He teases them, hurts them, molests them. But what's worse is that he often comes back, and he sometimes has help. He gets the kids through all manners of means. Some he pays, others he outright snatches off the stairs. But in one case, he simply pays a little girl to bring boys to him. The little madam brought him five, never batting an eye to the state the kids came back in. When they did come back. But Fish always came back. He groomed some of the children to accept his behavior, working the same evil St. John's had worked on him, twisting the young minds to accept a much darker version of the world. Nobody expects anything of the odd, frail-looking man in the painter's coveralls. The police never question him. The bloodstains on his clothes mix perfectly with the paint, you see. Whenever an adult begins to act as though something fishy might be going on with the kindly maintenance man, Albert closes shop, never to return. He travels across America, working in nearly half the states on the map, simply skipping town if one of the many children he draws like flies come crawling home, smelling like shit. Fish marries at 28 to Anna Mary Hoffman, a 19-year-old his mother arranged for him. They stay married for 19 years and have six children. During this period, Fish continues on with his sadistic second life without suspicion. His only arrest is for grand larceny and he does some time as a result within the walls of the notorious Sing Sing prison. This is probably something of a vacation for the sadomasochistic Fish. As long as he's giving and receiving it, he's a happy man. It's presumed more than known that Fish committed multiple murders in the early 20th century, a time when he began embracing rather than fighting off the murderous monster he felt destined to become. Future psychoanalysis of old ham and eggs would suggest an infantile nature pervaded his sexuality and sadism, a lack of development in his understanding of what he was doing. It can't be said, though, that Fish wasn't refining his methods as he went along. The year is 1910, and Fish has just turned 40. Nobody knows about the freak show wandering from painting job to painting job through America and up the East Coast. In his own mind, Fish is taken to believing that God, perhaps, is on his side in all this. He's pursuing such an extreme dark fantasy that surely some divine intervention is warranted at this point, but it never comes. And so he continues, assuming he has the blessing of the all-seeing. The Lord, after all, works in mysterious ways. He comes across Thomas Kedden, a 19-year-old mentally impaired boy in Wilmington, Delaware. Kedden was a runaway from New Jersey and had already been raped several times before he came across Albert Fish. Fish wastes little time getting to work on Kedden, grooming him like usual before stepping up his depravities bit by bit. He whips the boy and goes so far as to slash his buttocks with a razor, basically making it impossible for him to sit down. When he makes the boy bleed, Fish drinks his blood, straight from the wounds. Fish toys with the boy for about three weeks before it's clear to him that the abuse can be taken to its limits without notice. Kedden isn't speaking to anyone about what's happening to him. He is a perfect target. 
Fish baits the young man to an abandoned house, where he tortures him for ten straight days. He drags the boy through hell and finishes by cutting off half of Kedden's penis. The plan was to chop Kedden up and take him home, but the heat, Fish felt, would spoil the meat. He instead applies peroxide, then Vaseline to the stump, and then wraps it in cloth while gifting Kedden's tear-streaked face a kiss and his restrained palm a ten-dollar bill before running out into the night, still clutching the hunk of severed penis in his hand. Kedden lived out the rest of his confused life, likely trying to explain what had happened to him, his only proof the scars, and stump he held while urinating, until the day he died. Seven long years pass, during which Fish remains Fish. He's a ghost that haunts every town that takes him. It's not known if his wife suspected anything. Fish was always on the road while molesting and killing untold numbers of children. And Anna, who had been left back home with the kids, began cheating on Fish with her boarder, a man named John Straub. Eventually she runs out on him entirely, leaving him to care for their brood of six. This became probably the last normal drama of the Fish household. Anna returns within weeks to beg Fish to take her back, which he does after his children beg him as well. But Anna is up to her old ways within days, and it's Fish who finally discovers she's been sneaking her lover into the house when he finds them in the attic, mid-coitus. He throws her out again, but in a final act of being a true, blue, dirty, cheating bitch, she comes back when he's gone and steals every stick of furniture, every valuable thing in the Fish household, and abandons her family to be with her lover. Fish takes this poorly. Anna's abandonment stresses him so intensely that he begins hallucinating. He often chases an imaginary black cat around the house, knocking over chairs and lunging under tables, at first amusing his young housemates, but eventually he's just scaring them. The kids tiredly observe their father engage in long conversations with thin air. St. John the Baptist, whose orphanage you might remember, played an important part in his early life, is who he claims to have seated at their sad and crowded dinner table most nights. Fish has an insane religious epiphany that everything is connected. His visions of St. John, the orphanage, and his perverse sexuality. He further becomes obsessed with castrating boys, carving up girls, and cannibalism. His depravities, the utmost tips of them at least, break the surface into his home life which, thanks to Anna, has now become his whole life. Looking for a way to curb his appetites and avoid arrest, Fish takes up consuming raw meat, going so far as to try serving it to his children. Keep in mind that this is early 20th century raw meat, a time where food cleanliness was an afterthought, and the phrase, God made dirt so it don't hurt, was popular. Unbeknownst to many, God also made salmonella and listeria, Eat so much of a gram of steak tartare from the wrong place back then, and you're soon dead, a victim of diarrhea. He also delved full bore into extreme masochism. It can hardly even be called masochism at this point, more just outright self-harm. And he stopped hiding any of this from his kids. He even invited some of the older ones and their friends to swat him with that gore-encrusted nail paddle of his own making. 
He also liked to soak cotton wool in lighter fluid, stick it in his ass, and light it on fire. Maybe as a way to cauterize the flow of diarrhea he surely was experiencing on the regular. Worst of all, and you gentlemen out there might want to slow down to the side of the road, take a deep breath and just kind of ride this one out with me. Worst of all, he liked to shove sewing needles in his perineum. That's his uh, taint, or grundle, or gooch piece, as I like to call it. And when I say shoved in, I don't mean he poked himself a few times and, you know, got off. I mean he pushed them in past where he could retrieve them, and simply left them there. Then he went about his day with needles shoved in his fucking grundle. Constant discomfort and pain were the equivalent of a caffeine buzz for Mr. Fish. It should be noted as well, and this is jumping ahead a bit, that there is photographic evidence. This isn't just the word of a madman trying to get a rise out of the innocent public. X-rays taken after his incarceration show dozens of needles still lodged inside of him, some of them having been left in place so long they were rusting beyond his grundle. Needles all over his pelvic bone. A porky pelvis. In 1919, Fish's obsession with castration reaches a fever pitch. It's the lightning rod and his sole focus when sexually destroying little boys. Doctors interviewing him after his eventual arrest note this as a period where his religious delusions solidified. Fish sometimes thought he was God and had to sacrifice his son or that God was ordering him to sacrifice a child as a way to cleanse him of his perversions. In a twisted Old Testament view of things, Fish considered himself a modern-day Jacob, and that his sadism was, in fact, sinful. He became obsessed with confession and cleansing himself, the death of boys being the way to do this. He was racked with visions of human bodies being tortured. He claimed to be tuned to the voice of Jesus and the whispers of angels, swore that God began encouraging him to castrate little boys, the removal of their sex being the way to remove his own dark desires. Albert would fall into sadomasochistic trances, lasting anywhere from minutes to days, where he'd wandered horrified and enraptured through the darkest fantasies one can imagine. God help any child who crossed his path during one of these episodes. July 11th, 1924. Fish, now in his mid-fifties, attempts to kidnap a little girl named Beatrice Keel, eight, from a Staten Island farmhouse. He approaches her from a dirt road that strafes the Keel's family pasture and stretches out a nickel from his ill-fitting suit sleeve, its shine drawing attention away from the corpse-like fingers that pinch it. The ghoul must have appeared as an apparition to young Beatrice, Fish was out of his element, and terribly pale considering the sunlight available, that seemed overly repelled by his lint-ridden bowler hat and baked bean-studded gum line. The girl's mother glances at the window while scrubbing a dish to see a mustachioed and rumpled-looking old man coaxing her daughter towards him. The gray man, as have come to be known, is scared off. He's back to the road before the screen door swings shut behind the hustling mama bear. Later that night, the girl's father discovers Fish sleeping in his barn and shouts the almost two-dimensional figure away into the dark. 
The visions and voices were affecting fish bad around this time. The voice of God calling down from heaven, imploring him to rape and murder children. After failing to abduct Beatrice, he instead decides to kill a boy named Cyril Quinn that he'd been routinely molesting. He finds the boy out in the street with his friend and manages to convince the youngsters inside his lair and all the way onto his bed. As Fish freshens up, the two boys roughhouse for a minute before discovering knives and a saw under the bed. Fish returns to the bedroom with a whistle on his lips that dips in tune when he finds it deserted his tools of torture, scattered on the floor. Unfulfilled, Albert heads back out to Staten Island on July 14, 1924. Less than a mile from his previous attempt lies the McDonald property, owned by Arthur McDonald, a Manhattan police officer, who, along with his wife, Anna, has three children. A baby named Annabelle, a five-year-old named Albert, and an eight-year-old named Francis. It's Mother Anna who spots the strange, overly-dressed old man in the yard outside, watching the boys play. He sticks out in the idyllic, gold-tinted countryside, a dirty bit of black fabric ruffling in the wind amongst all that sweeping green. He mutters to himself and clenches and unclenches his hands. She waves to him and he waves back, then wanders off. The McDonald property is what you would call out there in the tradition of in cold blood. It's almost buried in the woods. Woods where local children also see the strange old man, dressed like a vagrant, watching the McDonald children from the tree line. He raises a hand and beckons for Francis, the McDonald's eldest child, at eight years of age. Around 4.30 that afternoon, a neighbor named George Stern is sitting on his front porch. He sees an old man walking into the woods and little Francis following him, but the boy looks comfortable in the old man's presence, and so no suspicion arises. It isn't until supper time that anybody suspects something might be going on. Five-year-old Albert doesn't say a thing about his older brother Francis walking into the woods with the man until his mother asks him directly about it. Father Arthur, still dressed in his police uniform, gets home and finds out Francis is missing. He heads out to look for his son without changing, a search that comes up empty, and soon the local police precinct and a host of volunteers join the distraught McDonald's. It isn't until the following morning that a trio of Boy Scouts make a gruesome discovery, a sight that they solemnly absorbed, and an experience that should have wilted the silly badges from their sashes. It's badly beaten, young Francis's body. His clothes and underwear have been ripped off. The method of death is strangulation with his own suspenders, which are dug so far into the flesh of his neck, the skin is broken and bloody. He's hanging from a tree. The police swear a vendetta against the killer. They aren't going to let the boy, the son of one of their own, go unavenged. Posses are formed and sent out amongst the community. Investigators jot down scores of tips, but most turn out to be all but worthless. Eyewitnesses keep telling the police it's a frail old man that Francis was last seen with, but the autopsy of the boy's body, a body beaten that badly, surely couldn't have been the work of an old man. Other persons of interest turn up, and most are exonerated. Two orderlies from a nearby hospital are cleared, an escapee from a local insane asylum, and a group of vagrants living in the Charleston woods look promising, but are let go, along with a truck driver passing through the area. It's a man named John Urkowski 
found living in the woods by townspeople, who was the final suspect in the murder. A lynch mob forms, and he kills himself rather than be hanged, shooting himself in the temple. A few weeks later, an alibi surfaces for Okowski, but it's too late. Francis's death remains unavenged, though most don't know it. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog. With my little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash dark topic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. February 11th, 1927. Johnny McNiff, 12, is babysitting his baby sister in their tenement in Brooklyn. Occasionally, he pops out to play in the hallway with two other boys who live in the building, Billy Beaton, three, and Billy Gaffney, four. The little boys are amusing, but Johnny's sister starts crying, so he turns inside to take care of her. When he returns a few minutes later, 
both the boys are gone. Johnny stands alone in the hallway. It's now eerily quiet. The concrete walls and floor seem smoother than usual, like he's been encased in frozen, muddy water. The boys are clearly gone, but somehow it seems that they may have never existed. Johnny's trance snaps when three-year-old Billy Beaton's father comes out into the hallway, looking for his boy. He finds only Johnny McNiff standing there and looking around confused. McNiff tells him they were just there a second ago, and the two go looking for them, first at four-year-old Billy Gaffney's apartment, then the sidewalk out front, and finally, the roof. All the while the search becoming more and more frantic. The boys are young. The world is dangerous. Mr. Beaton finds his son by the ladder to the roof, much to his relief. The trap door over the ladder, too heavy for any toddler to lift, is open. Little Billy Beaton tells his dad they were just up there, on the roof, him and Billy Gaffney. His father asks if Gaffney is still up there. Is he still on the roof? His son looks up at him teary-eyed and says, No. The boogeyman took him. The police arrive in force to search for little Billy Gaffney, most of the rank and file believing this to be a child abduction, all except Sergeant Elmer Joseph, who headed the investigation. He believes the boy just wandered off, and a good Samaritan would return him soon. After all, the boogeyman doesn't exist. And if he did, what could he possibly want with a four-year-old boy? The search becomes one of the largest in New York history after the Good Samaritan never shows with Billy in hand. Volunteers joined by the hundreds and tips, good and bad, pour in. One of the most valuable is discounted at the time. A train conductor named Anthony Barone and a driver named Joseph Meehan recall seeing an old man that fit the boogeyman's description in the company of a young boy in the train. They only noticed because the boy was crying and wearing nothing but shorts and a thin undershirt in February. Meehan tells the police that the old man, who had a large gray mustache, asked him how to get to Staten Island. The police dismiss little Billy Beaton's boogeyman story, however, and this lead dries up soon after. May 25, 1928. Albert Fish is scouring the classifieds as per usual, hunting in that way predators do eyes wide and unfocused, looking for anything that stands out. He finds an ad placed by a one Edward Butt, an 18-year-old looking for work outside of the city. On the advice of his mother, Delia, he placed the ad to find a position more permanent than his truck-driving job. He was especially interested in going somewhere away from the sweltering city heat. Fish found the ad, and being a man acquainted with the country through his nefarious travels, worked to ingratiate himself with the Butt family. His original intention was to kidnap and murder Edward after having lured him to an abandoned home he knew of out in the country. That remained the plan up until he saw Edward's little sister, Grace, who was ten. Edward's ad included his address, so Fish didn't even have to bother with sending mail. He just wandered up to their home at 406 West 15th Street in Manhattan. Fish wore his same old tatty suit and introduced himself as Frank Howard, a Long Island farmer. Delia served her unexpected guest lemonade as Grace, excited to have company, peppered the gray man with questions. Fish was immediately smitten by the little girl and tousled her hair before handing over a nickel for candy. 
What a nice man. The parents wouldn't know that this was typical grooming behavior for a man like Fish. That nickel was merely the first carrot, dangling at the end of the gray man's well-traveled walking stick. Given his predilections, Fish likely pulled the nickel out for most children he came across, simultaneously cementing his reputation as a kindly old geezer while setting up future prospects for himself. The second shiny coin, of course, would always be received with a bit more trust than the first. Fish rattled off his fabricated biography for hours while the buds graciously hosted. They fed him lunch, and he told them of his farm and the position available for their oldest boy, Edward. The biography was fairly close to Fish's own life. His alias, Frank Howard, also worked as a house painter, before taking up farming. He had six kids and a wife who'd run out on him, though this wife left because she was sick of farm life. If you want to look into that, what a farm means to a farmer, sowing seeds, watering, waiting, reaping the rewards after hard work and patience, what might a farm represent then to a man like Fish? And did he feel that his wife ultimately left him due to the long days he'd spent immersed in his own dark cultivations? Regardless, the Bud family were taken with this queer, frail-looking old man. He offered Edward the job for a going rate of $15 per week, which was pretty generous for the times. Edward asked that there was possibly another spot open for his best friend, Willie, and Fish, not wanting to pass up an opportunity to double his potential victims, eagerly replied that indeed there was work for one more. The Saturday start date Fish promises Edward comes and goes, with Fish sending a message via telegraph regretting his not showing to pick Edward and Willie up. You see, he didn't have a plan in place for two much younger, much stronger men. His eyes were bigger than his stomach. So he had to bide his time and whip up something else, for which he had to scrounge up some tools. It wouldn't be until after his incarceration that Fish revealed what that plan might be. The next day, Sunday, June 3, 1928, Fish takes the subway from his place on East 100th Street to 14th Street, near the Bud's home. Tucked beneath his arm is a package of rattling steel implements wrapped in red and white canvas. He will tell the authorities after his arrest that he called these his instruments of hell. He also purchases a white enamel pot of which he fills with cottage cheese to buy some strawberries from a vendor before heading to the Bud residence. He presents all of this to Miss Bud, claiming their gifts from his farm, a one-two punch to seal his false identity and make up for missing the pickup the day before. Fish stores his instruments of hell at a newspaper stand before arriving at the Bud home. The vendor finds the sickly man's request to be strange. The canvas satchel is making all sorts of odd metallic noises when he bumps it, but no matter. The old chap bought a paper and flipped him a nickel for the trouble, so he's happy to oblige. Fish feeds the buds a line about looking at horses in New Jersey being the reason for his absence the previous day. They're fresh back from church and in the mood to believe just about anything, so they smile and offer him lunch, which he accepts. Fish asks if they received his message and asks if he can have it back. Howard Bud, the father, says yes, they have and soon hands Fish back the incriminating letter, thinking it odd, but being too polite to say so. Fish stuffs it in his pocket. Grace arrives back from church and is just the most radiant little thing. 
Fish can't keep his eyes off her. She's in her Sunday best and already a very beautiful child without being done up. What he plans to inflict upon her will be like pouring ink onto white lace, like pissing on a crucifix, the ultimate act of transgression. He crosses his legs to hide his excitement and to shift the pins in his pelvis a little. He winces through a wrinkled smile as he sips his lemonade and appraises the little girl. Fish goes to work on the family, putting over 30 years as a professional child molester and the tricks of his trade on display. He sits Grace upon his knee and makes faces with her, asking questions about her life, about her friends. He pulls out a stack of 97 single-dollar bills and plays a sort of counting game with her, simultaneously dazzling the poor family with flash. To them, the wad of cash represents several weeks of pay, and he just pulled it out of his pocket, like it was lint. The afternoon goes well. They eat his cheese and strawberries for dessert. But when it comes time for Willie and Edward to go to the farm, he demurs. Fish tells them he has a family obligation, a niece's birthday party, in fact. He throws them some cash for a matinee by way of apology and remarks that, Hey, my niece is about Grace's age, and wouldn't she like to go to a birthday party? The parents barely consider this, before remarking of how swell the idea is, much to the little girl's delight. Albert Fish leaves with Grace in tow promising to have her back by 9 p.m. The little one rushes to keep up to the now surprisingly spry and spring-stepped old man. He reaches a thin hand down to meet Grace's own and whispers something to the girl. She giggles, then turns to wave farewell to her parents, who wave back, then engage in a sided embrace as the two disappear into the glare of the midday sun. Mr. Howard's frumpy suit coat swings as he strides ahead, casting a shadow that envelops their child as the two speedily crest a hill, eager to get to the party. Buds wait until well after sundown for their daughter to be returned. They watch the sun set over that little stretch of pavement they last saw her walk down, making up every excuse in the world on Mr. Howard's behalf. Maybe he's just running late. Maybe there was some emergency and Grace had to stay the night. It's not until the next morning that they finally give in and reach out to police. None of them have slept a wink. They pray to God that Grace had a more comfortable night though hope for that is fading with every passing hour. The police take statements from the Bud family and soon confirm Mr. Howard to be a fraud after checking the false address of the phantom birthday party. Further investigations show the Farmingdale address Fish had given for Mr. Howard's farm is bogus as well. The only other lead they might have had was that telegraph he'd sent on Saturday, the one Fish requested to have back and tucked in his pocket before leaving. Grace's picture is printed on 7,000 flyers, which make the rounds throughout every borough of New York and every law enforcement agency that might be able to help in the search. The flyers include the story of Frank Howard and the details behind Grace's disappearance, as far as the police know. The newspapers run away with the story, and it becomes a regional firestorm, generating tons of press and speculation. 
but almost nothing in the way of solid leads. The presumption in general is that Grace was abducted for ransom, even though the Buds are a poor family. Meanwhile, all of the terrible answers to Grace's fate soak into the walls of a remote, lonely little abandoned house in upstate New York. The girl's fear still palpable within, though her screams now mercifully are silent. Two men, but not fish, are charged with the kidnapping of Grace Bud. The first, Albert Cordo, is accused of the crime in absentia. He's a notorious and well-established con man, known to use young girls in his schemes. That said, he's never been known to abduct them for his purposes, usually just paying them out of pocket for their assistance. Cordell knows there's heat on him, however, and he lays low for two years, drawing almost all of the suspicion his way. When he's eventually picked up in Illinois, he's sent back to New York for investigation. In the meantime, a man named Charles Edward Pope is called in for the crime by his own wife. Pope tells the police he's not surprised she's claiming this. His wife just wants him gone in order to take the inheritance he's recently come into, he claims. A princely sum of $30,000, thing to shake a stick at in post-depression America. Pope initially believes he'll walk without comment, but Delia Budd, Grace's mother, fingers him as the man who took her daughter when shown his photograph. Operating on only that shaky evidence, the courts proceed to indict him on murder charges. They search his home and find nude postcards and a lock of brown hair. It'll be decades, unfortunately, before hair can be definitively matched to its owner. So at the time, it's deduced to belong to Grace Budd. Fortunately for Pope, it's inevitably discovered that Grace's mother is out of her mind. Authorities come to find that anybody they suggest is a suspect to her, she swears to be the culprit. Miss Bud's credibility disintegrates when she points a finger at an undercover officer that's only in the lineup to bulk it up. Detectives are eventually forced to conclude that she's a terrible witness and that they have no evidence whatsoever against their only two suspects. Both are released. Little Grace's face slowly fades from the papers. The nation collectively brings her to mind from time to time, but eventually they let her go. Albert Fish, meanwhile, marries a woman named Estella Wilcox in Waterloo, Iowa, in February of 1931, after meeting her through a matchmaking service. They are divorced in April after Fish tries to coax both Estella and her daughter into spanking him with a studded board as part of a game he's imagined. This is one of three flimsy marriages Fish enters in while still technically married to his first, Anna, who is yet to return and rescue her six children. Around this time, the leads on the Grace Bud investigation begin dying out. Police don't know that the Billy Gaffney disappearance and the Francis McDonald murders are connected yet. So for now, those cases are on ice. Albert Fish wanders the country, free and unencumbered by sanity or conscience. His children are aging and now take care of one another. Their father is a greater harm than help when home, and only a benefit when he's off to work or wandering the frozen fields in that deepest part of hell, even if only in his mind, eyes on his hands as they clench and unclench, dull pain radiating from whatever wounds he's recently inflicted on himself, dull spikes of perverse desire, the only thing pushing him onward, step by step, as he mutters back at whatever voices he hears down there. It'll be years before he commits his penultimate act of insanity, using nothing more than a pen and a scrap of stolen stationery the first domino in a long-falling line that will lead to his arrest, his capture, 
and the full details of the crimes he's committed. But until then, he remains a scrap of dirty fabric, floating in a fetid breeze, his thin fingers always polishing a nickel, looking for a chance to extend it with his long gray arm towards a fresh young face, a face he finds at least one of in every town he floats through, like a tattered, paint-spattered wraith. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Darktopic.